Tommy. I'm really trying here. You're trying? Yeah, I'm really not trying. Now? Where were you when it mattered? I, I needed this guy back when I was a kid. I don't need you now. You know, it's too late now. Everything has already happened. You and Brenda don't seem to understand that. Let me explain something to you, okay? The only thing that I have in common with Brendan Connan is that the pair of us, we have absolutely no use for you. <laughs> Look at you. Yeah. I was right. I think I liked you better when you were a drunk. Well, at least you had some balls there. Not like now, tiptoeing around and so. Welcome to part two of our warrior episode. But before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our beloved patrons know what they can find in their exclusive patron feed. And we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. We are starting the month of November and we're also starting year nine of the contrarians. So what do we have in store on our patron feed? Well, First of all, new QVRs, this time picked by Jason Nerdrovert. He is giving us Thanksgiving-themed picks, Alex. I am finally going to cross planes, trains, and automobiles off my blind spot list. I know there's no way that it's going to be as good as Due Date. But I always thought that was a bit. I forgot you'd really never seen that before. No, I've seen bits and pieces uh, on TV. Now, you, Alex, are getting something a little more recent. Uh, the Humans. I don't know what this is. But I know it has to do with Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's an A24 movie. Uh, unfortunately, it appears to have Amy Schumer in it. So well, I guess we'll just have to see. talking about being open-minded, Alex. Just, I just know, going... I know. <laughs> it's got uh, Richard Jenkins in it, who's, you know, a, an all-time great, having recently finished Dahmer and, more importantly, um, Bone Tomahawk, which he's just fucking fantastic in that movie. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And June Squibb, which, you know, we've always been complimentary of her and. <laughs> The one thing we know her from being Nebraska. So, hey, man, movies I've never heard of that someone recommends or demands for me to watch. I'm always down for it. Same here. So those will be your quick video reviews for November. Uh, we also have a new patron exclusive episode. The one for November is picked by Dan Brennick from Netflix and Swill. He's giving us the movie Black Bear. Again, I have no idea what this is. I'm assuming it's a Netflix original, because that's usually the way that uh, Dan's mind works. Uh, but maybe it isn't. I don't know. Have you heard of Black Bear, Alex? Uh, no. Man, all these fuckers with their recent movies. Um... <laughs> is it a dark and gritty take on Yogi Bear? <laughs> I wish. It's got Aubrey Plaza in it, so off to a good start. Uh, 2022 American black comedy drama thriller. Stars Aubrey Plaza, Christopher Abbott, Sarah Gadon, and Paolo Lazaro. Um, yeah, sure. Who plays the bear? I want to know who plays the bear. <laughs> uh, that's cool. We'll go in back row blind. Really looking forward to that. Now, before we go into the after hours pitch, we have a little bit of a follow up news. We plugged uh, Dale Bridges' book, The Mean Reds, a couple episodes ago. Those of you uh, who are already on our Patreon channel. You heard me read some passages of the book. Uh, hopefully, they were funny. 
because I thought they were funny. Uh, and I told the author, Dale Bridges, so. And you know what? We could always use another funny guy around here. So we were talking, and he, he was keen on coming on the show to do a, a noir movie. Hell yeah. TBD, to be determined which movie and when. But definitely, I mean, if you read the book, you realize that Dale is is a big movie fan. And uh, like I said, that he's funny. So I think that he can he can play with the Contrarians format. Uh, if you haven't read his book, I strongly recommend it. Uh, what is it about? The, the Mean Reds follows the story of an underachieving movie critic. This guy finds himself tangled up in this sort of murder mystery investigation in uh, his small Colorado town there because the guy's a movie critic and we're hearing his narration, his first person narration. Uh, there are a lot, and I mean a lot of fun movie references, which is what makes it perfect for the audience of this podcast. It's it's basically the kind of thing that you would recommend to somebody who would enjoy our show and somebody who's familiar with the noir genre, maybe even if they don't like it, like I, I'm not a big fan of the genre generally, but uh, this was just right up my alley. So, yeah, uh, Dale's book, The Mean Reds, is out now. So you can check it out ahead of his appearance on The Contrarians so you can get all the inside jokes once he finally makes it here. <laughs> now, as usual, after every episode, we have Contrarians After Hours on our Patreon channel. That's the spin-off show where we talk about other things that we've been watching, that we've been thinking about, that we've been listening to or playing. Alex, we are kind of in sync for this episode of After Hours, aren't we? Yes, very much so. You know, we, we're joking about our Grease 2 episode, which is coming up. We keep making the joke about returning to Rydell High. Uh, we're returning to the Bates Motel, not once, but twice. Back to the scene of the crime. We had so much fun with the... With the original Psycho and its remake, that that we wanted more. I'll give you credit for this because you are the one that that decided to to do it, and then I just followed. I followed your lead. Yeah, I remember bringing it up, and um, because as I've mentioned previously, Peacock really stepped their game up for the month of October with their horror selection. And on there, they had Psychos two and three, which I had always heard were head and shoulders vastly superior uh, follow ups to the god awful, ill fated nineteen ninety eight remake um <laughs> and so i was always curious i don't think psycho is a film that ever warranted a sequel or a remake but it was worth uh checking out so hula and i both um thanks to our friends over at nbc peacock we uh watched uh <laughs> psychos two and three and i think we there's a fun discussion that lies ahead of us Yes, it does. Uh, in addition to all that, of course, the usual patron stuff, the cutting room floor segments with all the clips that don't make it into the episode, our uh, pre-recording notes, everything that we scribble before we start recording an episode, and all our special events on Patreon. We had the Roxena miniseries, we had the Summer Break trilogy, and who knows what else will be up there by the time that you guys... <laughs> Check it out. So go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Prime. Check out tiers. See if you would like to join the Contrarian Supplements and uh, pitch in. $1, $3, $5, and $10, our respective tiers. Head on over. Just, uh, you know, a buck opens up uh, 
the Pandora's box, which Julio actually got to experience recently. And if you go far back enough, you can read about the the saga of the Pandora box uh, arcade set that I bought. But no, a dollar gets you access to the things that we mentioned. You know, those higher tiers get you more in the way of uh, patron demands and quick video reviews, that type of thing. But one dollar will get you access on the ground floor. You can check out uh, our now completed Roxena miniseries with all of the, the past episodes of that, in addition to all of our patron exclusives, all of our current and existing patrons. God bless you. Love you oh so dearly. And uh, as I like to say, we're always taking applications. Uh, speaking of taking applications, welcome John Amenta from The Pint. I guess I was charming enough, Alex, when I guessed it on his show a couple of times, and he decided to to join the Contrarian Supplements. John's a great guy. Uh, it, it just warmed my heart when I got a notification that he was a patron. You can be just like him. Follow him. He's popular <laughs> in certain corners of the of the podcasting universe. Uh, but yeah, welcome, John. A pleasure to have you. And uh, all right. Enough chit-chat, Alex. Enough uh, hawking our wares. It is time to uh, get in the ring. <laughs> the cage. The cage the door cage. has been shut and locked. Who's the, who's the ref in the movie? It's Josh Rosenthal. And as he liked to say back in the day, let's go to war. So let's do it. Colin beats midnight. Unbelievable. Hope you got a receipt for your goldfish. Alex, question for you. If you had been in the audience at this uh, Sparta event, that final night, the final fight, Tommy versus whatever Joel Edgerton's name is. Brendan. Brendan. Tommy versus Brendan. The two brothers. Everything's out in the open. And you have a sizable amount of money on you. Who are you betting for? Who are you betting against? And everything had happened the way it ha- it did in the movie? Yes, but you... I mean, obviously, you don't know about it. You just know what you see. No, I mean, like, the, the fights on the first night played out the exact same way. Correct. Yes. The lines probably would have been so dramatic. Uh that I would have put money on Brendan just because like, and by money, I mean like maybe a hundred bucks because like the, <laughs> he would have been such a big underdog with the way he won versus the way Tommy won his. So based on past gambling practices, I would have put money on uh, the underdog, but again, not a sizable amount. With a hundred dollars, how much do you think you would have gotten back? That probably, they probably would have made him something ridiculous. So like I probably would have like on a hundred dollar bet, maybe made like 500, 600. Oh, that's less than I thought. I thought that it was just more of a that the odds no, were even I, more. I mean, it's him. not often you get like a fucking plus eleven hundred or something like that. But um, I mean, it's Atlantic City, so five hundred bucks—that's enough to stay there for a month. <laughs> get to the buffets. <laughs> I would like. I would get. I would be banished from the town because everywhere I go, I would like tell the dealer or bartender or whoever be like you got snake eyes i would say that everywhere i went to where they're like you're done you're out of here another classic film about combat sports in atlantic city but not here today to talk about de palma's 97 uh, masterpiece and i'd be sad then too if i was there because i didn't get didn't get to hear the dialogue in the cage <laughs> you would just be wondering what they were whispering to each other yeah, and I'd also be going, why isn't anyone stopping this? His arm is clearly broken. <laughs> As everybody else around you is caught up in the bloodlust. Yeah. Kill him. I'd also be asking, why is Kurt Angle Russian? He won a gold medal for America. <laughs> uh, but hey, Where that's is Joe just Rogan? me. Who is this guy? 
Brian Callen. Well, from that high up, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Like, yeah, that looks like Rogan. <laughs> what a piece of business this movie is. On the first day of shooting, the crew gave Nick Nolte a standing ovation after the first take of his scene shot at the local diner. The scene was later cut, but appears as a DVD extra. I own said DVD, and I've watched that. Um, it's true. It's just Did like everyone give it a standing ovation. I, st- I stood in front of my TV. Uh, you had made kind of an off the cuff remark about um, the studio, like their requirements. One of them being Nick Nolte was in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's interesting is the role of Patty was written specifically for Nick Nolte by Anthony Tembakis and Gavin O'Connor, who are neighbors with Nick Nolte in Malibu. Oh, uh, but but. The studio didn't want him. They like came back arguing against it. You remember the wrestler Aronofsky wanted him, and the studio was like, "No." It sounded like something pretty similar to that, um, but they held firm and wouldn't budge on Nolte getting the part, which of course became the most universally praised thing about the film. <laughs> Who did they want instead of Nolte? I don't, I don't know. know. See that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Fuck, Alan Alder delivering those same lines. <laughs> well, the rooster goes crow, 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 or whatever the fuck he says. It's the same thing of like the wrestler. Because I remember it was Nick Cage, I think, that Fox Searchlight wanted. Maybe someone. I know Nick Cage was in the running, but it's the thing of like that it turned out perfect that Aronofsky stood his ground because that became the best part about it. It's just always funny how those things work out. But living next to Nick Nolte's got to be quite the experience. You hear all the all the wild parties. Like we need to get this guy a job. He's gonna kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> this guy needs to sober up at least for six weeks. Uh, <laughs> and then the second thing that kind of piggybacks on that is that song about today by the National. I guess those two dudes, Tim Bacchus and O'Connor, heard that, and they wanted that song to close the movie before they wrote the final scene. Oh, they, they work backwards. Yeah. And it says here, the scene was written with the song playing on a continual loop at O'Connor's house while the writers worked. The first time they heard it was at one of Nick Nolte's parties. <laughs> I forget what that app's called. We have to hold your phone up to like Shazam. tell you what's Shazam. Yeah. <laughs> They're like just next door, you know, working on their, it's the Ben Affleck, Matt Damon thing. They're just trying to work on their script and this rager till 5 a.m. at Nick Nolte's house <laughs> is going on and he's blaring that song. They're like, hmm. There might be something to this. <laughs> I'm going to get into just how great this movie is. Uh, albeit flawed, but great. So before we do that, I think it's important to play both sides here, both the red corner and the blue corner, and see what the green splotches were, being that, uh, what is that, 16% of the critics that submitted reviews that uh, apply to the tomato meter said this, this was not uh, good. They did not compare it to Rocky, and they did not have a good time with it. So what what were the negative comments about Warrior? Well, we're going to start with Martin Tsai from Critics Notebook, who says, Warrior is basically an action flick for chicks. You would not believe the amount of melodrama. The fuck is this guy's problem? <laughs> it's a bit of a misogynistic review. Right? I could not believe that somebody would actually use that as the Rotten Tomatoes quote. Like, is he trolling? Is this, is this a shtick and it just doesn't come through? Is this like somebody quoting us out of context? Uh, I guess that's a good point, too. Like the whole review could be like talking about how 
macho it is because you know all the violence and fists and shit and then the last line is that but out of context it doesn't work brother uh next glenn dunks from trespass director gavin o'connor tries sprucing up the material by swapping out boxing for mixed martial arts but it's still the same old story told the same old way at least real steel had robots have you seen real steel alex oh that uh, that offends me on many levels hugh jackman i'm familiar with real steel i think it's one of those movies i watched in the projection booth and it's not good uh, oh, it came out like right at the same time. The difference being Warrior made $24 million. This made 300 So <laughs> They were the deep impact in Armageddon of their time. <laughs> there you go. Next, John Bifus from Commercial Appeal, Memphis, Tennessee, says, relies on the graininess of the indie, gritty, shaky camera style rather than on the integrity yeah. of the narrative to convince viewers the film is more artful than cornball. He's he's sided with you on the shaky camera, Alex. He's the guy that doesn't go for that. But cornball? Would you say this movie's cornball? No. <laughs> but people cry. They hug. The climax includes a man telling his brother that he loves him. Yeah, and it's awesome. Corny shit. I know John Bifus says that that's that's cheesy. Finally, Andrew Pulver from Guardian says, has to conform to the lunkhead straitjacket of determined format. One doofus pounding another in extreme close-up for what seems like an eternity. Two hours and 20 minutes, Alex. This one goes way past the Mattis rule. It just takes the Mattis rule and puts it in a chokehold or something until it just taps. It submits. I like uh, that an analogy you're using there. I was freaking out because I was like, am I going to get it right? <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> so feel like uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Social Network. Was that a parable? What? No. <laughs> Did it feel like an eternity? There's a lot going on here. And there's also, at the same time, not a whole lot going on. Two hours and 20 minutes. Justified? Yes. Is there a, is it a shorter cut of this movie that would be more satisfying? I, I, don't, I don't think so. Like, I'm trying to think of what we would cut. The army stuff. I would suggest. Yeah. But even then, how much time would that free up? Maybe 15 or 20 minutes. That puts you right at two hours. That's fair. I think that it makes you understand like the, the shit with his dad and his mom and him being a grown ass man. He can't be that maladjusted just from that. I think the the PTSD mixed in with what happened and everyone calling him a hero and he knows like he feels he's not and like the like betrayal from not just his family but like his country and all that i think it really adds to the understanding of why he has so much rage i think if you just do it from the perspective of he's mad because his upbringing that works too but i think this adds like a completely different wrinkle to it and it also from like the under lying narrative of the movie adds just a very fascinating wrinkle to it yeah i think that the biggest problem would be that then you have less of a reason to root for him because really the moment that you actually care if tommy wins is when you realize that he's going to give that money to accurate yeah to you know his uh his friend's kid uh, even before they announce it at, uh, during the final match i mean you know that that's why he's doing it so uh-huh. uh I guess they would have to come up with another reason. 
to make us hope that he wins. Uh, I think it's kind of a bummer. I understand, you know, you can't tie all the loose ends. Uh, it would be just too ridiculous if you ended the movie <laughs> with Joel Edgerton telling Tommy, don't worry, I'm going to bail you out. I have $5 million. I'll take care of that kid as well. <laughs> just make sure everything is okay. Instead, what yeah. we get is almost the complete opposite, where you're left wondering, okay, but what's going to happen to that woman and her kid? Well, it's it's everything. It, it's over, and now it's time to heal. That's you know that it that's all part of it. And you're exactly right. It would it would be too much of here comes the boom and too much of like overtly sappy cliche shit. If it you know if the movie ended with like a montage of them all at a barbecue together or something. <laughs> no, but it should have been like double down on the bleakness. And then the final shot, or maybe the post credit scene is just that lady and her son just like watching the, the TV. And it's just like, <laughs> what now, mom? <laughs> yeah. Whatever you can do, Tommy. I know, uh, Manny would really appreciate it. Yeah. I can't believe I didn't feel the runtime more, or I didn't remember that it's almost two and a half hours. Cause God knows. If this is your first time listening to the Contrarians, I think my legacy from this is pretty much MCU bad movies over 90 minutes bad. And <laughs> there are exceptions. And it's like, man, I remember like the last time I watched The Dark Knight, I was like, man, yeah, this is this is definitely two and a half hours. But I watched this and I, I didn't really feel it because there's there's a lot going on. Did you just imply Warrior is better than the Dark Knight? No, no, I didn't. What I, I'm trying to say that like Dark Knight's like a benchmark for two and a half hour movies, which you know, like Godfather's three hours, and I'm just saying something that kind of everyone in our age range would understand immediately what I mean by <laughs> the acting is just so good. So I guess let me start with the script of this movie does nothing to break any mold. Uh, it doesn't try to. It doesn't. It makes sense that the dude who wrote and directed this is the guy who did Miracle. I don't believe Gavin O'Connor uh, wrote Miracle, but I know he directed it. And the screenplay was Mr. O'Connor, Anthony Tambakis, and Cliff Dorfman. Uh, so there was, was a a triple effort on this. And Mr. Dorfman also wrote for Entourage. So maybe some of the douchey dialogue came from him. <laughs> He came for the for the Edgerton pass. Like once everything go. was done, I was like, I need to punch up the dialogue for uh, Brendan. Uh, again, released on September 9th of two thousand and eleven, a uh, budget of twenty five million, a box office return of a little bit over twenty three million. Go ahead and get that out of the way. But yeah, Gavin O'Connor just directed Miracle, and then he wrote, directed, and was producer on this. And okay, so my point being, this is a cliche sports movie. It's very standard story. Of, you know, um, just Rocky, the average Joe. No one thinks he can do it. He perseveres in the face of everything else around him crumbling. He wins the big one, etc., etc. The broken home aspect. It's so stupid. Like it's one of these things. If I read the on paper, which I did before I saw it. And I didn't like this movie the first time I saw it uh, because I went into it not being able to see what was in front of me. I was just so focused on the ridiculousness of the story mixed with also how unrealistic it is from a sports perspective. And if you do that, then there's a lot of good sports movies you're going to miss out on, man. I was about to say, 
I, I think that that's not being a sports person myself. It's a lot easier for me to, if I watch a sports movie, not get hung up on that. But I think that if you're looking for accuracy in sports movies, I guess accuracy in, in um, any movie that depicts any specific field, um, you're going to come up frustrated more often than not because most movies are not aiming to be realistic. They just want to be plausible representations of whatever they're they're representing. So uh, does it happen to you often, though? Because I know I asked you the question with, specifically about uh, Moneyball, and you were like, no, it was just something that was in the back of your head, but it wasn't really affecting how you enjoyed it. I think it was it. just like, yeah, I think I was just like intentionally stubborn about this. I wanted them to make some movie that show, like I was explaining at the end of Contrarian's Corner, the way I view combat sports, I kind of wanted someone to present something in kind of a an emotional aspect and a realistic way. And I think I was upset my first time I watched this, so they didn't do that because the wrestler did everything that I could have wanted from a movie like that because it did represent wrestling in an accurate way, minus the part where... Randy takes fucking three minutes to blade because he has to take the tape <laughs> off slowly. But but that movie does all that perfect. And then when I watched this the first time, I think I was just like, man, those fights were fake and it just looks so phony and this wouldn't happen. And, you know, I, I defend um, Rocky Balboa probably as much as any of them from the boxing perspective. I think that's um, a really solid one. And the idea of just, an exhibition and he still ends up losing and you know all that shit so i think it was just like this willful stubbornness i had about it or it could have been that it was like so good that it kind of just i didn't want to accept it at the time that's happened with movies too that happens it happened a, a decent amount back in the day and it'll still happen every now and then of like and not just with movies but tv shows wrestling music of watching something and being like no this this doesn't compute uh, <laughs> and having to like take some time to process it so it's not from a lack of trying because Gavin O'Connor is an MMA person. He was a producer on an infamous documentary made in 2002 called The Smashing Machine about a fairly tragic figure by the name of Mark Kerr, uh, who was an MMA fighter in the UFC and uh, Pride Fighting Championships. And it's clear because, again, from like the cameos perspective to the involvement of the tap out crew to the film being dedicated to mask, which I forgot. That's the first thing you see before any credits at the end. Right. Um, and then of course, like the nods, like f the Fedor character and stuff like that. I, I think it was, it kind of just, I didn't appreciate what it was at the time. And I do now, but again, I need to make it very clear that it's a very standard cliche sports movie. That is the script of this movie is nothing particularly wonderful or groundbreaking, but the way this movie is executed, and more importantly, the way this movie is acted is superb. I think that's the word I used in describing it in my letterbox review. It is of the highest quality. You know, the, the script quality to performance quality ratio is off the fucking charts here, man. And through all that, it just works in the end. And, you know, obviously my MMA knowledge and attachment helps further that the man i love tom hardy nick nolte is it's it's bordering on how dare he be this good in this movie <laughs> and the thing like kevin dunn and all these side characters we have in it and joel edgerton's really solid in it it's just he's completely like almost overshadowed because the other two leads are just such powerhouse performances 
And again, Tom Hardy's character in this is right on the edge of like caricature, but he still figures out this way to pull it off. And my God, man, I, I loved this. And I'd forgotten until I was looking at the Wikipedia page. I have it somewhere in my poster collection. Do you remember the poster for this looked like a fight poster? No, no. I was going to make the comment that uh, did you watch on HBO Max? No, you own it, right? Yeah, I own it. Uh, HBO Max, the what you call it, the screen cap, the thing they put, you know, on the movie, it gives away the ending. <laughs> Dude, that's the the box art for the the DVD and like the Blu-ray and all that. It's where like he has his shoulder, his arm around him, and he's like helping yeah. him out. Yeah. Oh, so that's like oh, okay. So it's not just HBO Max; it's just everywhere. <laughs> no, what yeah. The hell? It, <laughs> Yeah, it's on the Wikipedia page, and yeah, it looks like a fight poster. It has both of them like in their fight gear, and on one side it says Tom Hardy, the other side it says Joel Edgerton, and down the middle it says Warrior. Uh, it, that that like is a straight out fucking Evander Holyfield Riddick Bow style poster from the '90s. So that that's a nice little touch as well. And I forgot to jest about it in Contrarian's Corner, but the event for Sparta is called The War on the Shore. And for all of our <laughs> old school Saturday Night Live fans, they remember Chris Farley is Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf on Weekend Update calling out Evander Holyfield for a boxing fight in Atlantic City. <laughs> and he goes, it's the war on the shore. <laughs> uh, splice and sound clip here. Iraqis were lucky I had an army because if I didn't, I would have been forced to go over there myself and personally beat the tar out of each and every individual that came within my parameter. And I'll tell you one more thing. I want Holyfield. I want Holyfield. I showed you what these guns could do in the Middle East. Now I'm going to show what they can do in the ring. This summer, Atlantic City, the Taj Mahal, Holyfield Schwarzkopf. It's a war on the show. All right. So obviously I set the stage there with a lot of uh, feeling and thought. Uh, we can come back to some of the individual performances, Julio, but just your overall second or third viewing or whatever this was. Oh, just uh, second. Okay. How are you walking away from this? We liking this? We thinking it's okay? What 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 are you <laughs> what emotions are you processing? <laughs> so many emotions. It's they feel alien because according to this movie, men just can't handle them. If you start feeling something, you need to punch someone. You know, I experienced this movie. I know they experienced it differently from you it's just that i come at it from with a different type of baggage because in that is very little i guess you know i've like my mma knowledge is minimal and at the time that i watched it the first time i i don't really think i knew like i knew tom hardy i knew joel edgerton but not as they have like fully formed personas in my mind so i was it was just I was watching two actors. I knew Nick Nolte, of course. Honestly, it's one of those movies that I never would have watched, except that it was probably on Netflix, and I just needed something in the background while I was doing chores or whatever. And uh, I remember just being surprised at the fact that it wasn't just a generic sports movie, but it was actually a movie that was trying to hit a little harder. But you're right. I mean, it's 100%. Uh, it just hits all the beats that you would expect it to hit, you know, from training montages and you know the, the inspirational moments where like the your hero turns the tide because he sees the wife or the, the or because his trainer says something that hits him hard and then you know he gets a second win like everything is pretty formulaic in, in that sense uh but it captures you because it's the you know you have the really good performances and it, the script is smart enough to build 
the story up to where you there are stakes and you really care about what happens to these characters and you know it doesn't get any they're they're movie stakes they're not stakes you would ever see in any real prize fight there's these like just insane scenarios concocted for the sake of this movie right that get, get, get you invested in the sense of a movie and it, it's it's kind of strange because it tries to ground it in reality and it still pulls it off i didn't mean to cut you off there but i, I no, caught but you're that right, this time you're right. Around. because yeah. it is it's not realistic I, I mean the spirit of it is right and uh, i don't think that back the first time i watched it whenever that was i don't think that i was as like i understood obviously you know the just nightmare of foreclosure but when you're a homeowner <laughs> it, it becomes a little more palpable and you know we've we bought this house uh four years ago now and uh i mean I, i've made the joke before like it's like you know when you do that once you have a mortgage you're like that is like the, the other than the marriage you know it's like this just it's this commitment you're like i'm gonna be paying this off forever and just the idea that scene where no emmerich is very calmly explaining how well due to the way that the market changed or whatever you know now you're about to lose your house <laughs> yeah <laughs> that shit's terrifying and suddenly that little bit that scene makes you care about joel egerton winning the fight you know you're like all right well now it has to happen <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, you already saw him with his family and you know the little girl has had health issues and everything but you just understand that this man that seems to be a good man is really between a rock and a hard place and you want him to win and then the same thing with uh with tom hardy right like from the moment that you see he get he makes that phone call and now you understand why he needs the money and again you just want him to win like if one of them loses they're not just losing the fight but they're losing you know, a house or they're losing the opportunity to help his friend's wife. And and then, of course, the entire time you're wondering, is Nick Nolte going to be okay? <laughs> yeah. So there is a lot going on that that I think I think that most sports movies, at least in my experience, like, you know, the generic ones, like they can hit all the beats and but and then that's it. Uh, they don't really get you that emotional response or at least not as, as strongly as I felt it with this. So for me, I'll go the extra step, Alex, I'm going to say, especially watching it the second time and being as captured, engaged by it as I was the first time, I will say this is, send hate mail to Atkinson Prime, this is better than Rocky. Like, this works for me better than Rocky. Uh, <laughs> because I care so much more. I, it, it, You know, we did Rocky, God, it feels like an eternity ago. Was it like our second episode? <laughs> and, uh, y- yeah. So, it's like a 20-minute episode. I know, yeah. Th- that was... I, it, I haven't watched it since, but I remember, you know, it, it was one of those instances where I mostly, I, I understood why people liked it and I appreciated certain things. But uh, one of the, one of my takeaways, I remember, was thinking, man, they really kind of fast forward through that climatic fight. You know, once it's him versus Apollo, it's mostly a montage of the fight. <laughs> And uh, and it works, you know, for for what it is. And I understand. I I'm not looking to really get into a heated debate with you or with anybody else about why Rocky is a better movie than Warrior. But I can say that I find Warrior more satisfying. I was about to say I don't think you're going to be met with one from me. I don't know if I'm ready to make that declarative statement yet, but uh, it's really good. There's and, just something um, very crowd pleasing in the in the best possible way about actually getting to see these fights play out and the and the training play out like i i like the two hours and 20 minutes runtime and i've been bitching about long runtimes recently almost as often as you do 
<laughs> but this movie, it flew by because I was just relishing every moment. Uh, every time that Tom Hardy knocked the dude out, it was just so rewarding. Because, uh, you know, they're usually assholes. Or it was just cool to see him, like, just have that that attitude, put that baggage into, into action. And, you know, it just yeah. told you so much about his character. And same thing every time that... You you had by by contrast you had Joel Egerton really having to fight for every win, and you could feel his age. You know, I know it's not realistic, but it was still in the confines of the movie. It was you know it made sense. So I really like it. it it's uh, you know I'm not much of a sports person, but easily one of my favorite sports movies. Now I can say that now that I've seen it twice. Really good stuff. We had mentioned it and joked about it a little bit in Contrarian's Corner. There is this strange like under the surface theme about how bad it sucks to live in America throughout the, 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 <laughs> mo- the movie of like insurance issues, poverty, you know, teachers pay the, and then of course the whole military complex that's like introduced there. Maybe not that it sucks to live in America, but I think m- it may be subconsciously or not even like by the effort of the filmmakers called out like some interesting things to consider about the plight of the American family. Just the fact that, the only solution left for someone like Brendan is to yes. go into MMA. I mean, that is, um, it's it's such a weird ending. I was thinking about it this time when I was watching it, and you know the the choice of music and the way it's shot and uh, it just all that stuff is it's it works both ways because I think at least for me, I'm like it's a happy ending in the sense that in the more traditional sense, right? Because do you understand that? They are on. They're in the path to healing somewhat. They're. It took yeah. forever, but they're burning the hatchet. But the fact that they had to go through this very specific <laughs> process mm-hmm. to to reach the healing part is is really sad. And, and so that can be a commentary on the, the society that puts them in that position, right? It pushes them to the limit to where the only thing that they can do to to stay afloat and to find you know regain their sanity and protect their family and everything it's just to resort to utter violence (laughs) oh yeah and like you said too i didn't even consider that that's it also it says like the both these men that are stricken with poverty the only way they can make some real money from themselves right now is entering cage fighting and that is like the don king only in america line but that's like the worst possible interpretation of it it's it's interesting the ending man you know, I've joked about getting emotional at the ending of this movie before, and today it just hit me like a fucking bag of bricks. It was one of those like, uh, right when he tapped, I was just like, "Oh God, here it comes!" <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought that you were referring to the Nick Nolte side of it. That's the part Every, that really like, gets me. Yeah, everything with Nick Nolte, I just felt like I had this like perpetual lump in my throat. Uh, <laughs> God, let's just go ahead. We'll come back to the ending in my weeping, but uh, <laughs> Nick Nolte, man, good lord! And it's not like it's a secret. Nick Nolte's a good actor, but it's this has already become one of those movies that you like. You know, it didn't really do much, and it already feels like one that I've had to numerous times when in conversations of Nick Nolte be like with like film friends or like on Twitter or something like, man, you need to see warrior. 
man, I, I'd almost if it was a leading role, if he had if he carried the whole movie with the performance, I might be inclined to say it's like a version of what Mickey Rourke did in The Wrestler, but better because he's. <laughs> I'm not saying it is because he didn't carry the whole movie like Ram did, but he just every aspect of it, you know, with the even just the way he eats and the way he drinks in it, you know, the the kind of old man that doesn't the line about uh, women aren't for me anymore. And he like carries himself like a man that's not trying to really impress anybody, Mm -hmm. but his like physical reactions one of the most heartbreaking moments in the entire movie is when he's in the street talking to Joel Edgerton and then the door opens and he sees his grandchildren and like, he gets this big smile on his face and like almost immediately starts crying Mm -hmm. and he's like trying to talk. It's like, Oh, is that Elizabeth or whatever, you know, the kid's name is. And Oh my God. Is that Emily? Is that Rosie? This movie for is like, fuck yeah. Sports and, um, touching as some of it can be there's some real crushing stuff in here when he finally when he falls off the wagon and tom hardy i mean that is i mean obviously that is the 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 big acting scene for nolte because he's playing drunk and he's reading or i guess reciting moby dick uh, but it really is the tom hardy scene because that's the the moment where you get to see him show some tenderness towards his father <laughs> That was not Mm -hmm. there the entire movie. And that is probably the peak emotional moment for me because it just comes out of, it's not that it's come out of nowhere, but it's just so unlike everything else that was in the movie. And maybe it was the thing that I was hoping for the most was like, can he finally forgive or start a dialogue with Nick Nolte with his father? And so they can figure the shit out because obviously Nolte is trying and, and this dude is just, mean to him and so they have that moment and that's that's it like they don't interact again in the movie <laughs> that's the last we see of them together so it's it's important that it's just that powerful it's like the only scene they have together too where it's like bright and yeah. you know it's the the lighting is very clear and like everything that's going on is very vibrant it's it's interesting that was that was the moment where i got like choked well i mean it was it starts earlier when uh you know he throws the tokens on Nolte's oh, man, face, that's, that's just—it's oh, so rough. Yeah, but that—that that was just like I'm like, all right, because I'd forgotten how it all mm. panned out. I remembered that that Nolte started drinking again at some point, but I, I had forgotten how it was all set up. And so when it happened, I was like, oh, this is what Alex was talking about. <laughs> he was talking about about the movie making you making you cry. There was that, and then the, the ending is in a more traditional way. I think I I was just. I guess a little bit of a, even though it's very Hollywoodized, I mean, what you were saying in a way, there, there's something that can get you emotional about just seeing somebody, uh, in this case, Joel Edgerton, you know, really overcome odds just through perseverance and all that. And, and just the fact that he does it while his wife is finally <laughs> on his side and his trainer mm-hmm. is telling him that he believes in him. I mean, it's just, that is sports movie bullshit, but when it's done well, then it really gets you. So, uh, I mean, the movie obviously sets you up for that over two hours, so so an emotional response is not uh, uncommon. That final, you know, we can move on to the ending if you want, because I was going to say the, tying it with Nolte in a way, it's so horrible when he, when Nick Nolte relapses that i the ending leaves me wanting a little bit more closure on that end you know it's like he just went through 
a major event in his life. You know, he had been sober for a thousand days, falls off the yeah. wagon. And then we, he, I mean, he doesn't even get a line for the rest of the movie. You know, we see him run out of the hotel. We see him make it to the fight. We see him give Brendan the nod. And, and then we see him look after his sons as they walk away. And I guess you could argue that that's all we need, that we don't need to see anything else. Uh, but he's been such an important character throughout the entire movie that I... I don't know, man. I don't know how you how you make it better without it being super cheesy. You know, like, oh, yeah. then he walks with them. <laughs> he walks them out. He joins them at the end or uh, whatever. I don't know. But it's it's one of the things that the, the ending leaves me conflicted because I kind of like what I was saying before. You know, there's so much that's left unsaid and undone. And I guess that is a good way, but a, a good thing. But it can also feel a, a little unsatisfying. I don't know. You, I think that you you are you like the ending more than I do. It's the way the ending's pulled off, and I also think you risk fucking things up if you try. Like at that point in time, I think I appreciate the movie, the ending for it more. I know I do than if they had tried to resolve anything and fumbled it, because the way you have the movie ending right now, it's very not ambiguous but uncertain, mm-hmm. and I think that that's kind of the story of the movie. Like Tommy's whole existence is uncertain. And we've shown that Nick Nolte's character, uh, pop Patty, his, his stability and his desires and what he wants out of life is uncertain. And, you know, Joel Egerton and his family, their, their, their fortunes and their future are uncertain. And so I think it, um, I think it ends fairly, and I also think there's so much. It, it's a it's a loaded nod. There's so much to read into that moment where he looks at his dad, and because he's, you know, you can read it like Brendan's looking at him, like you know, this is your fault. Like this mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. this is why we're here, and he like nods, like I know. Or you can read it as like, should I do this? Should I finish this guy off? And, and he tells him like, yeah, it. For for something that involves a cage fight, it's so like complex and mm-hmm. fascinating. It's um, I do like it, and it's like I said, I don't know, I don't know if it's like a guy thing or whatnot, but it it's so simple, you know, in a in a time where people think you have to make things so convoluted and complex, the whole thing of like all the problems Tommy has, you know, they're not gonna be f- fixed immediately. But like all this baggage he's carrying and that moment of him like tapping out signifies that like I'm ready to start healing because mm-hmm. again, again, it's a choke. He could go to sleep if he wanted to. Like that's one direction they could have taken the movie too. is he goes out defiantly there. That that happens in real fights. Guys go out defiantly and they refuse to tap and concede they were beaten by beaten by a better man and go to sleep. But um, again, it's it, like reading that in a, like on the, the pages. Like, and then he says, I love you. And then he taps out. What? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It sounds so silly, but like the way it's executed, it's just amazing. And then it's just the perfect dichotomy of the cut to his wife and then back to like all of his students and Kevin Dunn and and then back to Joel Egerton, like trying to console Tom Hardy. And then like it shows Nick Nolte in the crowd again and he's like completely broken down. It's uh, it's just an emotional whirlwind, and it's like the climax of the whole movie too. And it's you know, these guys knew what they're doing with that song and the way it's built up and everything. It's just um, it's skilled filmmaking. Yeah, I think I prefer the open endedness of it because, like, we were joking about it would suck to like mm-hmm. the ending be seeing him getting like loaded into a paddy wagon with all the the marines <laughs> and shit, but. Um, <laughs> 
You know, backing up a little bit, that that scene where uh, Nick Nolte's relapsed and he's listening to Moby Dick. I don't know why that's not something used more because the what immediately came to mind the story of the drunkard or the drug addict or the person who's like chronically depressed, watching, reading, listening to something for the umpteenth time and wanting it to change. I think that's very powerful because the Paul Walker running scared. There's a scene in that where the next door neighbor, I think he's a a Russian fellow. Mm -hmm. He's watching. um, I forget what John Wayne. Oh yeah. I remember. Yeah. 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 It's the one where John Wayne gets like gunned down at the end and he's watching it for like the, you know, hundredth time or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he's just like sitting in his front of his TV. He's like crying and he's like telling John Wayne to get up. He said, he says, get up, make it different. I think that's like very powerful and it really helps to establish like the despair in a character's life or just their current mindset. And here, you know, you got Nolte begging for them to turn the ship around. And it's oh, it's, it's so good. It's powerful because I, I didn't get to it in Contreras Corner. I was going to make some sort of snide remark about how this movie was so uh, overbearing, like heavy handed by having uh, Nolte listening to Moby Dick, which is about obsession and basically that underlying the themes of obsession <laughs> for the three men in this movie and so on. And But it becomes something else when the running theme of Moby Dick leads to that performance, that moment where it's just Nolte in a drunken breakdown, just reciting the lines. And, you know, it just gives it that other dimension. Then you're like, all right, well, it's transcended the... <laughs> the mere symbolism of like oh this is a little bit like moby dick now it's just like oh no and they're using it as a tool to show this man how conflicted and broken he is uh it's it's wonderful surely we can at least agree that the ending would have benefited from a reaction shot from noah emmerich watching the fight in his apartment (laughs) (laughs) you know what it makes me think of one of the biggest laughs and here comes the boom is when uh Scott Voss, was that his name? Kevin James mm-hmm. has his his fight at the end. And it shows like Selma Hayek in the crowd, like, you know, and uh, then it cuts to like his brother and their family and they're around the TV and they're going nuts. And then it cuts to his immigration class. Yes. And they're just all dead quiet, just staring at the TV, <laughs> bored as shit. <laughs> like that. <laughs> that would have been great no but it, you know in the comedic sense it would be like Noah emmerich at his desk at work on his computer even though it's you know 10 o'clock on saturday night oh right sorry your your daughter's kidney heart heart right sorry a lot of stories yeah uh it's similar to here comes the boom it's and i mean this genuinely it's a movie that tried to use its its um, battlefield, so to speak, in mixed martial arts. And I think it tried to kind of almost, it seemed like there was an effort to educate its audience on mixed martial arts, which I thought was interesting. Because I mentioned the point in Contrarian's Corner that, you know, after The Ultimate Fighter in 2005, the first Ultimate Fighter with Forrest Griffin and Stefan Bonner, that fight, and then the subsequent pay-per-view with Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture, it really did kind of take off and become more approaching mainstream by 2011. When this movie came out, like I said, it was about as mainstream as it's gotten and kind of stayed since it was being covered by ESPN, you know, sports sections and papers, Fox, there were regular UFC events on there. So it was as big as it was going to get, 
but you know when it kind of started taking off there in 07 and you know the male fashion was kind of dominated by what MMA fighters were wearing like those affliction t-shirts and shit at least in America I don't know how it was going elsewhere it definitely picked up and there were movies that came out because of that because it still had like this sense of danger about it because I mean it's fucking cage fighting anyone who's never seen MMA to this day if someone's never seen MMA or heard of the UFC you show it to them they're like what the fuck is this (laughs) it's you can kick someone in the head you know they they don't wear helmets they're in a cage that type of thing so uh, here comes the boom and i think warrior for better or worse are probably the two that stick out but you know you remember red belt in 08 uh, right the david mamet yeah and then there was like the bro dude attempt you remember the movie never back down i remember the title i think that movie made like 50 or 60 million dollars too it was Jesus. something but it you know and there was like constant bad straight to home video movies released that had like MMA fighters. I mean, that's the crux. The whole idea behind Haywire starring Gina Carano was because she was a star in MMA. And if you've seen that movie, good movie, fuck Gina Carano, but good movie. All her fight sequences are centered around like her doing like fucking triangle chokes and flying arm bars and shit. I I don't think I've seen a better MMA movie than this, but what the point I'm trying to make is the difference with like some of those other ones I listed, there was like, this attempt at trying to figure out how to finesse to make these into like a viable film property that no one really ever figured out. I mean, here comes the boom, even for a happy Madison movie didn't make a hundred million, but I appreciate the effort at least made in that and this to kind of try to educate and show what the sport is, even if you're using the most cliched storylines possible. And then, of course, Foxcatcher came out, and the ending of that movie was portraying <laughs> MMA as like, you know, uh, basically, the, it was portraying it as like the scene in um, Boogie Nights where he has to masturbate for money for that hillbilly <laughs> that ends up beating him up. Because <laughs> that's, yeah, that's how it ends. Channing Tatum does MMA, and they're like, this is the worst thing someone can do. <laughs> I, I want to single out two more performances so you like Jennifer Morrison, and I do as well, even though she is probably the most underdeveloped character in the movie. So that speaks, I think, to her talent as an actress, that you know she's able to get across so much with so little. Because the part is just, I mean, speaking of formulaic and, and just following the tropes and all that stuff, it's just like, oh, it's the wife that doesn't want him to fight. <laughs> very good facial expressions. Very good, yes. like... Um... I mean that's talent, right? Because it, it, she can yes. be she can become annoying very quickly because you want him to fight, you want him to to get ahead, you want him to get the money, and and she is presented as an obstacle, but she manages to sound very convincing with the arguments that are given to her. You know, she even though she is the voice of reason, and in a way she's the killjoy, the buzzkill here in the in the movie. You don't really turn on her. And and I think that that's you know part charisma, part talent. I don't know, keep you on her side in a way. You you don't turn against her. And of course, it's it's a lot of fun to see her finally giving in and watching the fights and all that stuff. For whatever reason, the main shot of her in this film that I always think of, and it'll probably remain that way because it's just really good to me, is the part where she's like sitting backwards on her couch eating a bag of potato chips and just staring at her phone <laughs> and she's just like waiting for it to go off and like yeah. the tension is so real in that scene and but yeah she she's great could have used more of her but like i said 
even in a two and a half hour movie, it, it's not like it really felt like there was much air to breathe for anybody. It, it's just, if at all possible, a tight two thirty. Uh, <laughs> here's some shit I found in real time. At the conclusion of Contrarian's Corner, I made the analogy to Greg Jackson, the MMA uh, coach. Frank Grillo based his character on famed MMA trainer Greg Jackson. Grillo and Joel Egerton trained and lived with Jackson at his New Mexico gym during pre-production. All of Grillo's fight scene dialogue while cornering, Egerton was suggested by Jackson. So Love it, because I was about to move on to uh, Frank Grillo next. (laughs) So that's literally when I said it reminded me of Greg Jackson. It's like, oh, that's why Greg Jackson wrote those lines. <laughs> uh, so how, how do you like Frank Grillo? Because I was, I, I guess the first time I watched it, I didn't know Frank Grillo, so it didn't, you know. And this time, it actually took me a few scenes to recognize him because you know he's like thinner and leaner, I think, than in other things I've seen him in. Um, you know, he's uh, as crossbones, he's all bulked up in Captain America, and then even when we saw him in Homefront. He was just greasy and grimy, and uh, but here he's all clean cut and has a very different attitude. I I liked him a lot. Did he seemed a little too uh, uh, out there as an MMA trainer, or did you buy him? Oh no, yeah, you don't know these fucking weirdos, dude. <laughs> he seemed pretty grounded. I mean, boxing coaches and MMA coaches can be some of the strangest people on earth. I made the Marv Marinovich. Uh, reference in the first half and he was he was not a boxing or an MMA trainer but he was just a general sports coach that was uh, a bit out of the box and Greg Jackson Trevor Whitman's another example of like these very eccentric human beings that you know kind of view themselves as like life coaches too because they always tailor their approach to their different fighters you know I can't treat all my fighters the same way and when you run a gym too, you you kind of have to have this prick side to you. And he is kind of you know flippant and uh, very matter of fact. But he's right. Like you know, when he told Brendan, you know, it's not you know if you go here and get tapped out in five seconds, what's that going to do? Because those coaches also, you know, when they invest in fighters and they show up and corner them. They, their reputation's on the line too. Mm-hmm. They act like it's about the fighter, but you know, high level MMA trainers and coaches, they always look devastated in the corner when their guy doesn't win because one, the emotional attachment, then two, it's like, mm, how's this going to affect my bottom line? So the idea of him being as kind of out there and eccentric and almost like bubbly as he is, mm-hmm. is, um, is very on the money. And I think it's clear that he definitely put in some time researching the role for this i really appreciated that the scene before their fight is a little bit better than the backstage scene before the match in ready to rumble where scott con shows up wearing a red suit <laughs> well i think they do almost as good a job in this movie as in establishing the relationship between frank and brendan <laughs> Is you know, the relationship between Scott Kahn and uh, Oliver Platt? Oliver Platt. <laughs> Not enough Martin Landau, though. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but here, no, I like that they, they, you can tell, I mean, they have enough scenes that they flesh it out that, you know, these guys are, they have a, a relationship that, you know, goes way back. And I like that. Uh, Which you buy, too, because mm-hmm. the way, like, just their body languages around each other, you buy that, 
oh, these guys knew each other a long time before we came into this. Yeah, and that, that, that Frank references Tess, you know, Brandon's wife, and how, well, is she okay with this? Have you cleared it with her? Tess know about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Because the last time you fought, I, I got read the riot act sitting in a hospital waiting room. You remember that? I was unconscious. <laughs> you, you were more than unconscious. <laughs> I was. <laughs> The, the reason behind this, the reason we chose this was because uh, Mr. Tom Hardy had made some headlines recently in competing in a, a few BJJ or uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournaments. Were these smokers? Is that what they call them? They're fighting in the streets? <laughs> no, they're not fighting in the streets. Uh, these are organized tournaments. But, you know, it's true to Tom Hardy form just because how kind of in, uh, enigmatic he is that he just showed up with no celebrity, no fanfare, no paparazzi, no entourage. He just entered himself into these tournaments. And, you know, I, I read some accounts where it was just like uh, the guy was like, oh, shit, that's Tom Hardy. Like the guy he was about to, you know, grapple with in the tournament. But I did find a, a little bit of coverage, a piece here on ESPN uh, that I'll read through before we move into the closing. This is uh, dated September 23rd by Mark uh, Raimondi. Mohamed Itomin was refereeing at a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournament last month in Wolverhampton, England. To his surprise, one of the participants was Tom Hardy, a big-time Hollywood actor with credits from Mad Max Fury Road to Venom to the Batman franchise. He also starred in the MMA movie Warrior hmm. in 2011. <laughs> Hardy, a blue belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, ended up winning the Reorg Open on August 20th in both the Gi, the traditional uniform of the martial art, and no-Gi tournaments. Hardy competed in the 36-year-old and up division, 85.5 kilograms in no-gi and 82.3 kilograms in the gi. Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which has an emphasis on fighting on the ground, is one of the key martial arts used in MMA. After Hardy's final victory, he and Itumain talked. Hardy works with the Reorg Charity, which helps military veterans in the United Kingdom when they return home. Itumain was running his own tournament sponsored by Reorg a few weeks later. Itumain told ESPN, it, in his funny voice, he said, count me in. Still, <laughs> Itumain doubted Hardy would actually show up. He's a huge movie star, after all. Three weeks before the tournament, Itumain got the registration list back and Hardy's name was on there. Itumain decided he would keep it a secret and not call any unwanted attention to Hardy's participation. Hardy competed under the real name of Edward. He's a man of his word, he said. It really impressed me. And then at the Ultimate Martial Art Championships, uh, parenthetically UMAC tournament in Milton Canis, Hardy went out and won again, competing in the 41-year-old and up division. Hardy competing in the Gi at 82.3 kilograms submitted all three of his opponents in route to the gold medal. The man who played the fearsome Batman villain Bane is truly skilled in real life. He's really legitimate, said Intumane, a second degree black belt. A lot of people think, oh, Tom Hardy, he's just a superstar. No, you get him on the mat and he'll smash you. <laughs> Andy Leatherland said there were some whispers that Hardy could come at the UMAC after his surprise participation in Wolverhampton. He knew that if Hardy entered the tournament, he'd likely be in his bracket. The day before the event, the registration list was published and Leatherland saw he would face an Edward Hardy in the finals if they both made it through. And they did. Leatherland said that the crowd was buzzing during Hardy's matches and everyone had their phones out recording and taking photos. Lining up for the finals was nerve-wracking, Leatherland said. I didn't speak to him, nor him to me. We were both just focusing on the match. 
As we stepped forward and faced each other, there was a realization of who I was facing. But as the referee starts the match, the focus changed to being in the moment, and Tom simply became a guy trying to take me down. And I was thinking how best to counter and attack him. Leatherland said he made an error and Hardy jumped on his leg and got a straight leg lock submission. It was just another fight, but clearly it wasn't as Tom is internationally recognized. So I will remember this one for a long time. After he spoke about his nerves for the day, which I agreed with as competing in general, it is hard and stressful. He said, considering his life is on the stage, he's fine with that. But jujitsu is real and affects him just like it affects everyone else. On Wednesday, the 45-year-old Hardy posted about his foray into Brazilian jiu-jitsu on Instagram while also promoting Reorg, which he wrote, encourages and enables veterans, active military, and first responders to use Brazilian jiu-jitsu and physical fitness training as a form of therapy to overcome physical and mental challenges, strengthen social connections, and improve overall health and well-being. Simple training for me, as a hobby and a private love, has always been fundamentally key to further develop a deeper sense of inner resilience, calm, and well-being. This is what Hardy wrote about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I can't stress the importance it has had and the impact on my life and fellow teammates. Danny Appleton, who is a military veteran and part of the Reorg program, faced off against Hardy in the semifinals of the Reorg Open last month in the Gi division. He said he was surprised to be competing against someone as famous as Hardy, and he was impressed with Hardy's strength right away. Hardy submitted Appleton with an armbar after escaping a cross-collar choke and a triangle choke attempt. I was very surprised at his strength, he told ESPN. He had very good technique moving from one submission to the next. Super impressive. After Appleton said he had chatted with Hardy, who told him how tight the cross-collar choke was and that he would come train with him at Gracie Barra Middlesboro in the future. He was so down to earth, Appleton said. He spoke to my children, who are both fans, and also practice jiu-jitsu. We spoke about the reorg charity and how much he does for them, taking time to turn up and compete as well as be a trustee for them. Itamain thanks Hardy, who represents Roger Gracie's jiu-jitsu team in England and has trained under Carlos Gomez in Los Angeles, is close to purple belt, and he would not be stunned if one day Hardy earns his black belt. I think he's in for the long run, he said. I think he will get his black belt. He definitely will. He loves it so much. He said to me, it's an addiction for me. So, Tom Hardy out there tapping motherfuckers. <laughs> you think he watches Warrior now and goes like, this is bullshit. What were we thinking? <laughs> he's like, what the fuck was that knee bar? Come on. <laughs> or he watches it back like the guy in Running Scared telling him to like fight the choke more. He's like, no, <laughs> peel the arm back. Make it different. It's interesting, too. Just our boy Gavin O'Connor here, the lack of uh, follow-up that has come from it. Uh, there was a Bollywood remake of this called Brothers that came out in 2015 that uh, was a big hit. Potentially one that our buddy Brandon Curtis could tell us about. Uh, and then he, he asked me to bring it up, so I'm glad that you did. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. He said that it's uh it's not as good as the American version, partly because they do even less with the the Tess character. Oh, that's too bad. I know. <laughs> you would think it's longer. He says it's two hours and forty minutes. <laughs> Does Singham show up at the end and shoot everybody? <laughs> Took his belt out and beat the shit out of them with the belt. <laughs> yes. In 2015, he directed Jane Got a Gun. Oh, Natalie all... Portman? Yeah, and Joel Edgerton. That movie's bad. Noah Emmerich is in that also, and Ewan McGregor. He's trying to repossess Natalie Portman's farm. 
Is this a Western? Oof. Not probably the best follow-up to a great sports movie is trying to make a Western. And then The Accountant and The Way Back, both with... Uh, Affleck. Uh, yeah. The Way Back got some good reviews. I actually wanted to watch it. Uh, I don't know if it's still on HBO, but it was for a while. It was because Affleck uh, plays an alcoholic. Or maybe he's a recovering alcoholic, maybe. But I don't know. He got... You know, it wasn't a, a major success. It might have been one of those movies that came out when the pandemic was just starting. Oof, March 6, 2020. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You done, son. You done. <laughs> uh, the accountant isn't Anna Kendrick in that. I haven't seen it. Uh, okay. I heard it's good, but I don't know. Well, whatever the case, a hell of an entry and a very delicate balance that um, I think there are aspects of this modern filmmakers could take away. Like you said, the danger is taking the wrong things away. Judd Apatow would watch this movie and be like, should have been longer. <laughs> Why didn't I let Kevin Dunn riff? <laughs> yeah, where's my wife? <laughs> the test character was supposed to make out with another man at some point. What's going on here? Um, <laughs> found myself. This isn't a movie I can watch all the time. It's not even one of my I'm drunk at home and need to put like a classic on to make me happy type movies. It's something that I have to be in the right mood for. But this probably being the fourth time or yeah, probably the fourth time I've watched this all the way through. Found myself blown away all over again. A tremendous film. Blessing in a curse style. What my initial takeaways were because my baggage about being an MMA fan was so heavy that like I couldn't get past it on my first viewing. But now that I've come around on it and just realized what it's doing, I appreciate more because of said baggage, because of the things it tries to do and the representation and also kind of wink wink, nudge nudge to the the fans of it without being annoying. I never even got the chance to say goodbye to my own mother. You had no right to keep that from me. That was not your decision to make. I, in my letterbox review, gave it four and a half stars. I am going to give this a letter grade of an A, a dead center A. No minus, no plus, but uh, an excellent film that I would recommend to just about anybody, unless... Unless fist fighting makes you uncomfortable, you should watch this movie, is my recommendation. Julio, where did you settle upon this second watch? Uh, I'm actually exactly the same. Four and a half for me. This is, uh, I'm surprised. I was thinking four through most of it, but uh, you get to that final act and it hits the emotional beats, just keep coming. And it's just undeniable. If the movie affects you the way that it affects me, you know, if it's working for you, it is four and a half. Uh, yeah, like like I said, I would recommend it to anyone, really. I would just say, this is a good movie. It doesn't matter if you're familiar with MMA or not. Like you said, unless it makes you squeamish, this is, this is a movie that you should just watch and just experience it. In a way, if you're not into sports movies, you would probably enjoy it more because you then yep. you wouldn't even see them as tropes. <laughs> you just see it as, like, yeah. oh, this is happening. And like one of the best examples most recent examples i can think of that we've done of like you know the easiest trail isn't always the worst you just got to make sure you have the proper tools to do so you got to make sure you have the proper clubs to to make par or go under par in this case and it's a simple story but man it is executed and acted perfectly so 
All right, Warrior in the books. Yet another great film added to Contrarian's canon, and I'm sure one that'll be referenced probably in the the upcoming year, uh, referring to people as a goddamn maraca or something <laughs> to that effect. <laughs> Julio, what is on deck? What's on deck? It's another great movie, Alex. Uh, although critics may disagree. Actually, I've never seen it, so we'll we'll find out if uh, we agree with them or not. It's the very very rotten Grease Two. My God, a sequel to a movie we tackled years ago during the summer of Travolta. There's no Travolta here. There's no Olivia Newton-John, but there is one Michelle Pfeiffer. Is that enough to make it watchable? We'll see. But we will have. There's also uh, a Rex Manning. Don't there is a Rex Manning. That's true. So maybe that couple can can light the episode on fire. If not, we'll have help anyway because it's not just going to be Alex and I doing uh, Contrarian's Quarter. In real talk, we will also be joined by M from Verbal Diorama, bringing her very own perspective to to the proceedings. And uh, if you've listened to her show, you know that that's going to be very interesting. All right, Julio, before we move out of here, we got anything else we need to discuss? Well, there's a little bit more of Contrarian's uh, magic floating around the the Twitterverse, the, the podcastverse. Um, in fact, by the time that you listen to this, have been out for a couple of weeks at least, but we, both of us, made it to the Multiverse of Badness podcast. We're there to talk about something else that was fighting related. This time it was uh, wrestling in the form of comics. It's a comic book about Seth Rollins, his secret origins, or something like that. We had a lot of fun there. Uh, you can check out the Multiverse of Badness episode. Uh, we'll post a link on the show notes, but we're there with uh, with Mike, the host, it was just a lot of fun. I wouldn't have guessed that I would ever read a wrestling comic, and now I have. And uh, <laughs> it, it was it was, it was something it. else. <laughs> no, but seriously, it's the show is it's a lot of fun to begin with. Uh, Mike and his co-host Zach they just tackle odd comics that usually provide very uh, funny slash fun conversations. And the one that we picked for our episode definitely fit the bill. You, you'll get to hear Alex once again educate me and sometimes Mike about the going-ons of the WWE. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Triple H must always look strong, and that apparently bled into the comic world. So be sure to check that out. <laughs> well, we've got those out of the way. We have exited the cage. We've done the post-fight press conference. It's time to hit the showers. But before we do that, I think it's time we move into perennial plugs. So... We want to start off by giving thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand. Take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our friends at the Late Night Grin. You can find them at Late Night Grin on Twitter. Wrestling podcast. Also, they cover film from time to time. Do watch-alongs for the month of October. They did several uh, watch-alongs, as they call them, grin-alongs for the Halloween franchise. Some good dudes over there that help support us, so we want to do the same for them. Again, that is at Late Night Grin on Twitter. From there, you can find all the links to their YouTube page, Twitch page, everything in between. Boys, thank you. Take care. 
Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothgieser is the man behind our logo and all the other graphics that you see on our webpage, our Patreon page, our merch page. Uh, if it has a little tomato looking at itself in the mirror, uh, odds are that Hans is the one that drew it. You can check out his work on his webpage, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. And you can contact him to tell him how much you like his work uh, on Twitter at Mildemonios or through email at mildemonios at hotmail.com. You can check out his podcasts. He has two, Nación Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs, and Marginal, which is about economy. You can check out his books, a whole bunch of zombie books and fantasy books. His most recent one is Requiem for Tarma, which is, uh, I want to say, the fourth entry in a specific zombie series that he's been writing for, for a few years now. So check out his work. Tell him how much you appreciate the support he gives us, because we certainly do. Hans, thank you. And thank you to the support and effort of Ms. Zoe Perez, our social media guru, social media czar, social media star. That rhymed. That worked out well. <laughs> Facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. You can find us on Instagram at Contrarian Prime. We have our YouTube page, which you can find the link to in the show notes. Uh, we have a bunch of material. We have a lot more than just these shows, and you can find them through those pages. And Zoe uh, does so much work for us putting those together, making them look real pretty, real special. So, Zoe, we appreciate all the work you've done for us and continue to do for us. And we appreciate you, our listening public, for tuning in to yet another episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Yeah.